This is an ABC podcast. Bo Romenyi is a medical specialist based in Darwin. In 2018, Bo was made the Northern Territory's Australian of the Year for her work as a paediatric cardiologist. Like a great many people in Darwin, she's not from Darwin originally. Bo was born in Hungary when it was still a communist country and things weren't really great at that time for her family. The suppression of honest opinion, the constant fear of the secret police made life in Hungary intolerable for her mum and so they escaped and they came to Australia. And once in Australia, Bo's life took off. She followed a career path that's taken her from Hungry Jacks to working as a cleaner to medical school and then to postgraduate studies where she supported herself in a really unorthodox way by playing high-stakes poker. But as much fun as that sounds, it was all just a means to an end. And now Bo Romeni works in the Territory to prevent and treat rheumatic heart disease among kids. Hello, Bo. Welcome. Hello, Richard, and thank you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure, Bo. First of all, tell me about this work you do as a paediatric cardiologist. That's like a heart doctor, but for kids, is it? That's correct. So I'm a children's heart doctor. At the moment, I'm working in a Northern Territory where I've been living for over 10 years. And 50% of my day-to-day work is looking after children with rheumatic heart disease. Now, that seems really odd. Like, you don't think you'd need a heart doctor for kids. Heart disease is something you normally associate with much older people. Why are there children with this kind of heart disease? How does that happen? So rheumatic heart disease is really a childhood heart disease. So this illness starts between 5 to 15 years of age. And you're quite correct in saying that today in mainstream Australia, this is a disease of elderly people. And the reason for that is Australians in Melbourne and Sydney contracted rheumatic heart disease back in the 1940s and 50s, so after the First and Second World Wars. And now... They're living with it at age 70, 80 and 90. And the reason why we don't see young Australians in the capital cities with rheumatic fever and and a consequence rheumatic heart disease is because this illness has been virtually eliminated in established economies. Now, in the places where I live and work in rural and remote Australia, this disease is rampant. In fact, the burden of rheumatic heart disease in children in remote indigenous communities is actually on the rise. How do you get rheumatic heart disease? What's the thing that instigates it in these kids? So rheumatic heart disease is a result of repeated streptococcal infections. Now, this germ called strep or strep A is a very common germ that causes the common school sores. So school sores are pussy sores on the skin. And also the same germ causes the good old-fashioned pharyngitis or sore throat. Like strep throat you're talking about here. Exactly, that's what I'm talking about. Right, and what happens once you get strep throat? How does that then bring these other symptoms on? So if strep throats are left untreated, then the immune system fires up. And inside hunters, the white cells, get confused between the strep germ and the heart valves. So the heart valves are kind of caught in crossfire. It's the body's immune system that's so fired up because of seeing this germ repeatedly that it's the body's immune system 
that damages the heart valves. But it all starts back from untreated and repeated untreated strep infections. Is it hard to diagnose, given that you might have a sick kid or an unhappy or unhealthy kid that presents themselves at a, at a doctor, you'd think that heart disease would be the last thing you'd look for. So is it often not properly diagnosed, Bo? Yeah, so actually going back a step, you would think strep throats and skin sores are pretty easy to treat. It's treated by the plain old penicillin, which was commercialised in 1954. This was available widely to all people by the late 1950s and early 1960s. And to prevent this terrible heart disease that leads to premature death and open heart surgery, all doctors and nurses need to do is recognise these childhood infections and treat them appropriately. Now, if those infections go untreated, as many of the listeners would know, if you have a sore throat, you don't get antibiotics, it will get better anyway. You know, it will get better by itself in five to ten days. But if, you, if the body is exposed to these repeated infections during childhood, that's when the damage starts happening to the heart valves. Now, the way to recognise this is being aware of the possibility, so listening to children's hearts carefully and specifically listening for the signs and symptoms of rheumatic fever. So one of the challenges this we face in remote indigenous communities is the majority of the doctors have never seen a case in their entire life. And when they come and work in remote places, they're not aware of the signs and symptoms and they don't know what to watch out for. You've only just gotten back from a community. Do you just, like, scan all the kids there that you go into? What do you do there? As part of my clinical work, I really just see children who are referred to me with suspected rheumatic fever or rheumatic heart disease or known children or children who had open heart surgery. But in my spare time, as a team uh, from Menzies School of Health Research and from the Royal Darwin Hospital, we do go out to these communities and offer heart checks for every single school-aged child. So we did this in Manangrida and, you know, a lot of people make comments like... Indigenous people in remote communities are not really engaged with health services. Well, that's kind of untrue. In places that we had gone to, we were managed to capture 90% of the school-age population and be able to check their hearts with a little ultrasound scan machine, which is as big as your phone, and it's very accurate in diagnosing rheumatic heart disease, and then children can be started on the right path, on the right treatment to prevent open heart surgery and to prevent death. So it's one of those conditions that the tiniest bit of prevention just saves a mountain of cure, in other words. Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of what we would call roadblocks that we can put in place to prevent the child from needing open heart surgery or dying prematurely. And, you know, this is treating skin infections and throat infections. Secondly, diagnosing rheumatic heart disease early when we know the treatment works and can lead to the resolution of the heart problem. So there's a lot of things we can do to so that children don't have to go down this path. When you're in one of these communities, Bo, can you just tell pretty much by looking at a kid straight away if they've got a problem like this? No, to be honest, not really. Um, sometimes um, you can ask the parents on how the child is, and the comments that we get from parents about these children who have got quite severe rheumatic heart disease that are undiagnosed, parents often just label the child as lazy, they just make comments like, my other children are really good, they run around, they go to school, but this one is always lazy. 
It's interesting. Um, let's say 10 years ago when I started going to these remote communities in the Northern Territory, you would mention the word rheumatic heart diseases to people and they would have no idea what that was. But that was true when we talked to politicians or just the general public um, across Australia. So even though in some communities up to 5% of all people in a community would be receiving painful monthly injections to prevent the progression of heart disease, they would have no idea why they're having this needle and they didn't really understand what is rheumatic heart disease and how it starts. Now, 10 years later, the community awareness in many communities, not all of them, is fantastic. You mentioned the word rheumatic heart disease and they'll say, yeah, I know all about that. That starts from the germs and it's, you know, it causes this and leads to that and you need to prevent it and this is how you prevent it. And yesterday um, when I was in one of the remote communities, I was just blown away talking to people on the street um, just randomly. They would tell me what rheumatic heart disease is and it's really impressive and that comes from the hard work of the local schools who reinforce these messages about rheumatic fever, rheumatic heart disease from the local clinic. And of course we have done um, some amazing work with Take Heart to really create the community will and community leadership to put this disease in history books. Well, like I said at the start, you live in Darwin, but you're not from Darwin, you're from Hungary. Which part of Hungary are we talking about? So I was born in a place called Dabreton. Not many people have heard of it. Oh, it I've heard of it. <laughs> we all, the world owes a great debt to the people of Debrecen because this is where the, the Debrecen sausage comes from. Am I right? That, that is correct. It's a fine thing, the Debrecen sausage. What kind of a town was Debrecen? Was it industrial or was it a rural town? It's a relatively small town, population of about 250,000, and it's known for its universities. During the Soviet times, it's always been a, a town where the greatest minds would come to uh, study the subjects of their choice. Did that fire your ambition as a kid? Not really, to be honest. Um, when I lived in Hungary, I always felt like there was not that much point of thriving or trying to achieve anything because the end of the journey was similar. For example, my father was a mathematics professor at one of the universities in my town, and he used to get paid exactly the same as the local toilet cleaner in the <laughs> university. <laughs> so he enjoyed what he did. He loved mathematics, so he would always have preferred to have his own job than someone else's, but there was no reward. There's no reward for progressing or achieving anything. So my father achieved his greatest things probably in his first year of university, and that was kind of it. He didn't progress his knowledge too much because there was the no drive. I have friends who grew up behind the Iron Curtain and they said that at some point they all had this thing where their parents would come to them and say, this is how the world is. You can say certain things within the house and you can hear certain things that are said within the house, but you can't say them in public and you must not say them at school because you get mummy and daddy into a great deal of trouble. Did you get that talk from your mum or your dad? Yeah, uh, especially from my mum. As children, we were extremely careful. We had to be extremely careful even with children of our own age, so as a six-year-old or eight-year-old, we would not be sharing conversations what we had in the house. What we said in the house stayed in the house. And as a child, I had extreme fears of uh, communicating any of my thoughts or curiosities. I remember one day uh, accidentally um, 
I mentioned something about the United States at school in slightly positive way. Of course, I didn't know anything about the world because our media was so restricted to the Eastern Bloc. But sometimes you hear rumours from other children and I heard this rumour that the United States was a great place to live. And I mentioned that in the class and it was very quickly sorted out and I was told if I mentioned that one more time, that is it. <laughs> I've got a friend of mine in Prague who's a writer and, he, you know, he grew up on the border of Germany. I said, what was the Western world for you? Because, I mean, Germany's just right there. And what was that for you? And he said, even though it was so close, it was like another planet. Was that how it was for you too? Yeah, it was a, a place that was almost like a fictional place mm. that you may hear about it, but it was unachievable or not something you could even or allow yourself to dream about that one day you might get to visit those places. When yeah, you said was... you were frightened, what do you think you were frightened of? So I was frightened of what my family told me. If I mention or talk about anything that's related to the Western world, then our entire family would in end up in gulags in Serbe um, Siberia. Now, I had lots of friends who disappeared overnight and never saw them again. And, of course, there is no way of proving or disproving what happened to them. But people were saying that that family ended up in a gulag in Siberia, and which is a work camp. It's a work camp in the most freezing part of the country, and once you get there, that is kind of the end of your life, or that was our fear and understanding. From my understanding, what would happen is if you got caught out saying the wrong thing, you know, you'd be interviewed by the secret police, it could go very badly for you, perhaps you, you might then be under surveillance and there'd be this sliding scale that uh, eventually might make you a political prisoner. It sounded like your, your, your parents were, were scaring you, though, in order to keep you quiet so that you wouldn't speak out in class. Yeah, my mother uh, specifically was scaring me. My father, uh, my parents divorced when I was quite young. Uh, well, we're still living in Hungary. So my father actually got offered a job in the Western world and he rejected that. And I don't know the exact details of it because he's now passed away. But my father was very happy with his job as a university teacher. He was very happy with, the, you know, the Hungarian pubs and the Hungarian um, salami and <laughs> the sausages. And he felt very comfortable in his place and had, he had no desire to really explore the world or, or um, maybe even afraid. He, he was not willing to risk anything. So he was very content just in his own little world. As opposed to my mother who really was strongly against the Communist Party. Uh, my mother was punished. So in Hungary, actually, you had, the you, you had the option of voting. It wasn't compulsory, but you could vote for a political party and you could vote for the Communist Party. There was no other parties, but you still <laughs> have the <laughs> option of not voting for the Communist Party. <laughs> and, and if you voted for the Communist Party, then you got a pay rise, which was termed as a pay rise, but really what you got is your minimum pay. But if you didn't vote for the Communist Party, then you got disadvantaged and you lost something like 20% of your wages. And that would have so been if you wouldn't have had any hope of going to university if your mum had spoken out against the Communist Party. That yeah, so my mum did speak out in a way that he didn't vote for the Communist Party. And, of course, my father thought that was silly because all you had to do is tick a box and you get more money. <laughs> so for all of that, both, despite all that, did you still have fun as a kid? What, what did you do during summer? Yeah, our childhood was fantastic. Um, had a lot of friends and great people. 
growing up. I spent most of my summers in communist camps. So we used to have, um, it's a little bit like what you would call the scouts in, in Australia, Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts. So I spent most of our, uh, I was allocated to the sort of the Hungarian Navy branch. Hungary is not known for its Navy. It's landlocked. <laughs> 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 it's a landlocked country. <laughs> That's like Alice Springs having a navy, isn't it? Yeah, it's got a surf club. <laughs> and people say the best thing about Alice Springs is because it's equal distance from all the greatest beaches in Australia. <laughs> true. That's very true. So that was you. You you're being <laughs> brought up having your summers with the, the Hungarian Navy. Yeah, and also played chess in my spare time. Yeah, so that they were the two things that we got engaged with. So what happened when your mum came to you and broached the idea that you might escape from Hungary? So my mum was very careful when she asked us and specifically asked us not to share it with anyone, not with my father, not with my best friend, because that, that is a very, very serious plan to leave Hungary. And they asked, she asked us, me and my sister, to really think about it. And when I thought about it, I, I just got so excited. Like I really knew nothing about Australia because our education did not... Uh, allow us to even think about the Western world. So she wanted to come to Australia right at the outset, like it wasn't yes. the United States or Canada or New Zealand or anywhere like that. It was going to be Australia always. That's right. And how old were you when she asked you this? Uh, so I was um, 11 or 12, 12 years old. Yeah. So you were excited about that. But what did you know about Australia back then? So the only thing I knew about Australia is what we learned in geography. So we had pretty good geography classes. So I learned, I knew it was an island country. I knew its greatest mountains and river systems, and that's it. Right. How do you think? Pe how did you think people lived? Did you, were you aware we sort of mostly live in big cities around the coast? No, I thought Australia, and also I knew that Australia was a very young country. Of course, that's not exactly true because the Indigenous Australians have been inhabiting this land for, you know, over 50,000 years. But I knew Australia was a very young country, 200 years old back then. And I really felt like Australia was a really primitive country. I felt that people lived in little huts. I didn't realise it had buildings. I didn't think it had roads. I thought it was more like going on a great camping trip. <laughs> right. And you were still excited about coming here? Right. Yes. <laughs> Hungary is a landlocked country, so I'd never seen beaches or anything like that. So coming, the idea of coming to this um, beautiful island um, was really exciting. And I also kind of reflected on that and, um, you know, the Hungarian uh, philosophy and um, teaching at school was really that, you know, Hungary is the greatest country in the world and Hungarians invented everything and that kind of philosophy. So I really felt like I had something um, to teach the Australian people, you know, um, because Hungary and Europe, you know, it's an established civilization. So I thought, you know, <laughs> I've got a bit of a task on right. me. <laughs> I'm going to come out to Australia and teach people to listen to Bella Bartok and play chess. That was what, yes, exactly. and eat the breads and the sausage, the sausage. That was you going to save us all. Well, they're all good things, of course, indeed. So once you heard that you would, were going to try and escape to Australia, did that change the way you were thinking about the future then and your ambitions for yourself? Yes, very much so. So firstly, my biggest task was to keep quiet. It was uh, my mother decided that the decision was made around Christmas time and the plan was for us to finish our school, which the school finishes in June in Hungary because it's from September to June. So that's a school year. 
And so I had this burden on my shoulder for about six months. That's something I couldn't tell anyone, couldn't share with anything. And yet in the background, my mother was making very, very clear plans that was visible kind of every day. So that was very tough. That was really tough just to keep quiet. And, um, and you couldn't tell your father you were going? No. That must have been horrible for you, Bo, trying to hide that from him. All my cousins, but especially my father. And I remember uh, I finished school in June and it was important to finish the school year because that was my sister's final year of primary school. So she f- finished year eight. For me, it was year six, so not, not such a big deal. And um, I remember the very last day uh, that I saw my father, which was the last day we were in Hungary, I kind of told him that, you know, I'll see you on Monday. This was a Friday afternoon, and I told him all the things that, you know, we need to do, and specifically, like, he owed me some money for the work that I used to do on the tobacco farms for him. And I said, you know, you need to pay up the 20 bucks, so I'll see you on Monday, have the money ready. And I wanted to create this very clear impression that we are not going anywhere. We are not leaving the country. And, of course, no one knew that we are leaving the country, but to compensate for that, to, to, so to be so clear, just to be absolutely clear that my plan for the next three days is I'm going to see you on Monday. And then just to pull that off is a straight face. And it wasn't just to my father. It was to my grandparents, my, my cousins, my best friends, even my school teachers. How hard was it to walk away from them once you'd said goodbye with them thinking you were going to see them again before long? Yeah, I just tried so hard not to cry and tried so hard to really keep it together because my fear, I was so afraid of going to the gulags. I was petrified, absolutely petrified that this is a great opportunity to I have to go to Australia, potentially. You know, there was still a big journey. Or if there's any suspicion at all, I'll go straight for the rest of my life to a Russian work camp. Now, whether that fear was absolutely rational or not, it was real to me, and it was real to the people that we spoke to. So how did you get out of the country then with your mum and your sister? Uh, So we actually got out of Hungary legally for good behaviour that we had. Once every 10 years back then, you could apply for a three-day Western passport. So we all had a communist passport, which, which, which essentially meant we could free, freely travel to the Soviet Union, Czechoslovakia, Romania, and pretty much any time that we liked. But to go to the Western world, only people who had been on best behaviour could apply for a three-day visa for once every 10 years. So we got granted that, and it was very strict in a way that they limited how much cash you could take. So for our three of us, we could take what would be equal to currently in Australia, something like 300 bucks for three days, so not quite enough to pay for accommodation or, um, you know, it's enough to kind of survive, but it's not enough to actually have a holiday. So we went, we left Hungary on a train just with the T-shirt that I was wearing, one spare T-shirt, one spare pair of shorts, um, so it looked like you were only going for three days? Yes. And where did you go to once you were on board the train? Where did it head, take you to? Uh, so Austria. Austria was the, n- the nearest United Nations refugee camp. So we were having, uh, heading to Austria. Were there other families like you on the train hoping to escape? Yeah, so you kind of never know, but um, 
or what people's purposes was, but there was a family immediately next to next to us in this old-style Russian carriage. So you can see right across the little doorway, the glass windows. And they had two kids about our age and mum and dad, and you could just see they had a lot of luggage, a lot of luggage and a lot of memorabilia that they were taking, you know, photos, this and that, that you think, OK, you really don't need for a three-day holiday. And um, the conductors, the border guards, stop the train, and when the train stops, it stops for three or four hours. You know, they go through everybody's belonging and check everything and so on. And they had a long conversations with the family next door to us, and then they were taken off the train. And you can only speculate what happened to them. They never came back on the train? Never came back on the train. Hmm. And they were distressed as they were taken off. And what did that do for you, seeing them be taken off the train? Well, I presumed that they were being sent to Siberia. Obviously, that's of speculation, but that was my fear. So I was so anxious, so petrified inside, but trying to put up a really confident, relaxed manner when the conductors entered our carriage. And I was really afraid of my sister saying something stupid because my sister was always so bloody honest. And I was afraid that if she opens her mouth, she's just going to say something that will make me end up in a gulags. So I was... <laughs> I tried everything to make sure that she doesn't get a word in. <laughs> Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So nonetheless, you were saying before that you were on the train going from Hungary towards Austria, towards Vienna... You'd seen a family pulled off the train because they were so obviously trying to escape themselves. How about you? Did you sail through then to Vienna without any trouble on the train, Bo? Yeah, we certainly did. We got through that and we arrived to Vienna. We spent the first three days. We just had enough money to afford some really basic accommodation and some really basic food for a few days. So we had a genuine holiday. And then day three, when we ran out of our last cent... Then we entered the refugee camp. How long was it then before you were given permission to come to Australia? 11 months, 11 long months in Austria. The toughest part was the first seven days where we locked up with lots of people, unable to leave the building and just completely locked into a building for medical, criminal uh, assessment because there were lots of, lots of people in that refugee camp who were genuine refugees. So we were more in a class of a political migrants. So the communist system really didn't suit our family. We had ambitions to, you know, to do better than that. We had ambitions to express our feelings, free speech, and we wanted to live in a democratic society. But there were really people who were genuine re refugees coming from war-torn countries. The following 11 months was much more pleasurable and it was just a waiting game and hopefully that Australia would accept us. So then you were accepted, the three of you got on a plane 
and came to Australia. What were your first impressions of Australia once you got off the plane? So we arrived in 1988 on Queen's birthday and it was a long weekend and our place of arrival was Adelaide. Um, we didn't have a choice which part of Australia we went to. Adelaide can be a bit quiet on a Queen's birthday weekend. <laughs> uh, I know that myself. How, how did it look to you once you got there? So as I said, I was expecting sort of dirt roads, huts. And when we arrived to, <laughs> <laughs> arrived to Adelaide, there was these massive tall buildings and really wide roads, like six-lane highways, and there was absolutely no cars on the road. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, why did Australia build roads like these when there are no cars or people around? (laughs) (laughs) Of of course, that all changed on Tuesday, um, the first working day, when all of a sudden people just emerged from everywhere and then you could understand why there was need for such infrastructure. (laughs) So did you get a kind reception? Were people understanding of what you'd been through and where you'd come from? Uh, it was absolutely amazing. Uh, when we arrived, we had a fridge that was full of food. I've never seen such a generous amount of fresh fruit. The welcome was amazing. Um, we had Hungarian interpreters. And, in fact, the first day I arrived, I was sick. I had a boil on, on my bum that I was sitting on for 24 hours on a flight. Ow! <laughs> <laughs> it was my first ever flight in my life. <laughs> and it was not very comfortable. So on the first day, uh, the team got me a Hungarian-speaking doctor and and he actually came to our little place where we were living in the migrant camp and did a little surgical procedure and lanced abscess, which was a big relief. And I thought to myself, I really felt like the, Australia as a country really cared about our family. It was very impressive. So then you moved to Townsville with your mum for the warmer weather. Tell me about the first job you, you got in Australia. Yeah, so the, my very first job was working at Hungry Jacks, where I used to work 20 hours a week to help me to support myself through high school, you know, buy books, be able to do things that I wanted to do. Because, you know, we came to Australia with zero dollars to our name. So my family was very poor, and I really wanted to take this wonderful opportunity that that I had, which is to come to Australia, and I wanted to have a little bit of money on the side just to be able to really achieve my dreams. Were you learning English at the same time, formally as well as informally, by flipping burgers at Hungry Jack's? Yes, definitely, yes. So initially, because my language skills were so poor, I worked as a burger flipper, because to work at the front, at the counter, you had to have good language skills. So certainly at the back, in the back room, in the burger flipping room, that's that's where I learned Australian. You mentioned you were a chess player. How far... Did you go with that in Australia? Uh, so I went quite a long way. I became the Australian girls' chess champion in 1990, which I won again in 1991, and then the same year I became the Australian women's chess champion. And it gave me opportunities to li- really live my dream, uh, to discover the world and to travel around. So as a result of that, I had the opportunity to represent Australia in three junior world championships. Did that help you fast-track your path to citizenship once you became yeah, a chess champion? Yeah, it certainly did, and it was a big challenge. Um, uh, back then, we had to be residents of Australia for two years before uh, having the ability to apply for citizenship and get a passport. Remember, when we came to Australia, we didn't have any passports whatsoever because the Hungarian passport was not valid. It was a communist passport only. So we applied to the Australian government and explained the situation that I've been chosen to represent Australian World Championships and I got my um, 
citizenship papers six months before my mother did. Um, so that was great. So back in Hungary, I suppose the idea of a glamorous holiday was a you know go down to the Black Sea and paddle about on the beaches there. Where did being a chess champ take you? So the first place it took me was to Singapore, and it was quite remarkable because in Hungary I was an okay chess player, but not in the top 10 or 20, that's for sure, for my age group. And arriving to Singapore, I caught up with all my Hungarian friends at the World Championships. So that was amazing, but except for I was representing Australia and they were representing Hungary. Then to Brazil and to Germany, yes, it helped me to build friendships within Australia as the Australian travelling team, but also just really opened my eye to, to the rest of the world, yeah. So then you were admitted to the University of Queensland as a medical student. How did you put yourself through medical school? I got a job as a cleaner. So every morning from 5am till 7 or 8am, I used to clean the lecture theatres and toilets and whatever needed cleaning. And then straight after that, I often ended up in exactly the same lecture theatre that I just cleaned in the morning. So I had long days, long days at med school, but always an early start to be able to afford those really expensive textbooks. Yeah, um, I, have to, I have to ask, which are the, which are the dirtier, dirtier people? Is it Hungry Jack's customers in Townsville or uni students in, in Uni Brisbane? students, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Used to be. <laughs> so how did you go as a cleaner? Did you mind the work? Uh, I didn't mind the work because I kind of focused on the result, which is getting money to buy books. So that was what... So I just did, you know... I did what I needed to do. Six months into my job, the people were so impressed with me is that I got offered a full-time job to be a cleaner. But nonetheless, it's nice of them to offer you that. It is, because to get my first job as a cleaner, you know, I might have applied for five, 15 different jobs, part-time jobs, so I could support myself through university. And most of those applications got rejected. So I tried so hard, and now here I go. Now I've got a full-time job offer. <laughs> <laughs> so once you've completed your medical degree, where did you go? What was your first post as a doctor? Yeah, first post, so I did my internship in Townsville and then after becoming a fully-fledged doctor, I was based at Mount Isa Hospital for a few months and then I was posted to Dumuji Hospital in northwest Queensland. That's very remote. Did they give you a, a car to get around in? Yeah, so I was I was very lucky. Um, when I got posted there, firstly, I got promoted to the acting medical superintendent as a first-year doctor, so that's pretty impressive because <laughs> there's no-one else for the job. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I was given a car for both private use and for work purposes. It was a brand-new car. It was delivered on the back of the truck to Dumuji Hospital. It had something like t- 10 kilometres on the od- odometer, and uh, first two days uh, working in a community, I was on call. And on the third day, I thought, OK, it's my night off. I'll go for a drive. And I think I got as far as about 40 kilometres before I rolled the four-wheel drive. Wow. And wrote it off. <laughs> <laughs> and what kind of impression did that leave on the locals once you did uh, that? Yeah, it was... You know, firstly, um, I was going to the pub because it was a dry community, so I was really desperate to get to the pub <laughs> because the pub shut at 6pm, you wouldn't believe it. So I had one hour to get there. And I was on the wrong dirt road to the pub, so I would have never made it to start with. <laughs> <laughs> and very fortunate that that road was going to the sea. And 
and the Aboriginal people picked me up, but they had a dugong on the back of their truck, and they gave me a <laughs> they gave me a lift back to town, and having a chat to them, and said, "Oh, you're the local doctor. Oh my God." The Aboriginal people thought, this is the doctor who's going to look after us. We roll the four-wheel drive on the way to the pub on the wrong road. <laughs> so there you are in the back of a truck sharing space with a dugong somewhere in Gulf country. You were a long way from Hungary at that point. Definitely, yeah. What did you learn being out there that you didn't learn at uni? I realised there are two Australias. There was the Australia that welcomed my family and gave us tremendous opportunity and just treated us like kings and queens. And there was the remote, rural, Aboriginal Australia where services were minimal, absolutely minimal. The housing and living circumstances, much worse than communist Hungary. Um, access to basic medicine was minimal. And they had these diseases of poverty that no longer even made it to the textbooks of Australian medical students. And it was just really disheartening to see that this is the same Australia who welcomes foreigners like myself, treat their first Australians in such horrible ways. Tell me about a 14-year-old girl who came to you as a patient. Yeah, so we had lots of sad stories out in a bush, but there was one specific girl that just highlighted to me that uh, how society can fail young people in our own country. Uh, this 14-year-old girl was diagnosed with rheumatic heart disease after she gave birth to her first child. Now, you might think, OK, what's a 14-year-old doing having a baby to start with? Well, unfortunately, she was raped in her community. She was, she was raped and she was let down by her system that meant to protect her. Then she went to Mount Isa Hospital where she got a diagnosis of rheumatic heart disease and a baby. But when she returned to the community, she really had minimal access to basic health services for disease of poverty, rheumatic heart disease. I worked very hard to try to secure her a cardiosurgical spot in Brisbane or Townsville. And while Australia provided and still provides excellent and free cardiosurgical services, open-heart surgeries for children and people, but this, is, this disease of rheumatic heart disease in Australia, it's a disease of 80 and 90-year-olds. So she was put on the same waiting lists as these old people. And because she was a child who had a child, she was no longer considered to be a paediatric patient. So she was referred to an adult hospital as an adult in the same waiting list as adult people. And even though she finally did, did get a spot to have her heart fixed with open heart surgery, the health services provided free open heart surgery, but not free dental procedure. And a surgeon refused to operate on her for good reasons, I must say, without having what we call dental fitness, because otherwise the germs from your mouth can settle on the heart valve and lead to an infection. So it's really important for people having heart surgery is to have pristine teeth. So she could get free heart surgery, but she couldn't see a free dentist. She died waiting. And there were no dentists in Mount Isa and there were no dentists in Dumuji. So the only way for her to get a dental procedure is to pay for a flight or a bus or a ride from Dumuji to Townsville, which is about, on the roads, it's about 
1,400 kilometers to the nearest dentist. It just highlighted the, the inequalities that people face every day. And I thought, well, this is so basic. This is so simple. No child should die from a condition like that. And the system is really not geared in Australia to address diseases of the poor. The entire health system is geared towards high-end medicine. And we completely forgot about these basic things. And I thought, if there's, I can make a difference, I can definitely do this in my lifetime, is just to get rid of rheumatic heart disease. I don't want to see young people suffering. And it's not just the person that died, and it's not the baby who will not have a mother. The little baby was only six months old when her mum died. It's the entire community that's just grieving for the loss of this life that was completely preventable at so many different levels and just a system let her down. It sounds like there was no-one to argue her case either. No-one. Yeah, so I tried my very best to argue her case um, to the point that I tried to negotiate with the cardiologist in Townsville saying, well, you know, you need to see her anyway. If you make a cardiology appointment for her, then the public hospital pays for the transport on a bus to Townsville. So if you lined up a dental appointment for her at the same time, then she wouldn't have to pay for the transport to the dentist. And everybody was just in their silos. Everybody just focused, well, I'm a heart surgeon. That's what I focus on. And no one had the overarching view on what it's like to be a patient from a remote community and how can we help people who, who really need help? So deciding to become a paediatric cardiologist, what did that mean? You had to then do a postgraduate studies. What, how did you do that? So to become a paediatric cardiologist, it's six years uh, of training altogether. The first three years is advanced paediatrics training and then three years of paediatric cardiology. So I did my three years of paediatric training, but with the aim of never fully being trained as a paediatrician. And then as soon as the three years is up, passing the exam, then I would apply for a training position to become a paediatric cardiologist. So I was very, very focused of just doing the paediatrics part of it so I can get to the training program to be a paediatric cardiologist. And this time, to support yourself, you didn't flip burgers, you didn't clean lecture theatres, you took up professional poker. Good God, that's amazing. <laughs> How did you get introduced to the game? Uh, I got introduced to poker by my partner during an unfortunate accident that I had to my shoulder, very dislocated by my shoulder. For six weeks, I was kind of unable to do normal physical and sporting activities that I enjoyed. And rather than feeling sorry for myself, my partner said, why don't we just play poker on the weekends? You know, that's one way of having fun. How did you become so successful at it? Are you able to count cards? Uh, so it's a little bit different from blackjack, which is counting cards, but it is different, but it is similar. So if poker is, it's about 30% or a third um, probability. So you need to be very good with your maths and count fast. So sort that out. So like, that's just the basics. So are you, you doing to... sums in your head the whole time? Are you going... Yes, are you yes. Seriously, like you're calculating yes. mentally equations of probability while you're playing poker? Yes, yes. So you got to have that, and you got to have that as the fundamental part of it. And then a 30% is, or a third, uh, which is more than 30%, 33.33, is psychology. So, for example, it's not much point of having the best hand if no one is going to pay you off. So you get the best hand and you have to make people believe <laughs> that you don't have anything. 
and pe make people believe that you're bluffing. And of course, the last third is just luck. And the thing about luck is luck evens out. So if you play enough poker, like I used to play 60 hours a week, um, so that's more than a full-time job. Luck evens out. You have good days, bad days, good luck, bad luck, but as long as the first two parties consistent, your probability and good psychology, you, you will make money. And where were you playing? In homes or casinos or what? Uh, I mainly p played in casinos at the Crown Casino in Melbourne, which was kind of my my home. When I first arrived to the high-stakes game, people said, well, we haven't seen you before, you know, where are you from? And I said, well, I thought to myself, this is a really good time to practice my my skills. I said, I've just been released from prison. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, they asked me why, and I said, you know, you really don't want to know. And so I kind of continuously practice the skill of, of deceiving people because that's what poker is about. It's about deception. And that was all good, but after six months, I got a full-time job in my training position as a paediatric cardiologist. But I couldn't kind of just stop playing poker straight away because I've been doing it, you know, 60 hours a week. So when I started training in paediatric cardiology, for the first few months at least, I would still play the whole weekend playing poker, you know. I still needed some cash. And then remember one night I played, I had this Homer Simpson shirt, like really bright shirt. <laughs> um, and then one day um, I had a great night. I think I played till like something at 8 o'clock in the morning and I went to work in my Homer Simpson shirt to the children's hospital. And I called my first patient in, let's call it Lou Johnny. And I called Lou Johnny in to my consulting room and I realised the father was the person who I played against poker <laughs> all night. And this guy knows that I'd just been released from prison. <laughs> so there's just, there just no time to explain that. So I just put the file down and asked one of the doctors if they could see that family. <laughs> and next time I was in a poker room, I told them, I've never been to prison. I'm really a doctor. <laughs> really? I'm really a doctor. <laughs> I'm, I'm ashamed to say I'm, I'm really a doctor. The fact, the fact that all this took place with you in a Homer Simpson shirt makes this so much better. As me. I don't know why, but it makes it so much better for me. I think that's just fantastic. So how much are you, are you able to tell me how much money you made? Can you just uh, give me any, yeah. any kind of a sense of that? So it's not massive amount of money, but, you know, five to $10,000 per week. Oh, oh. Right. What? Significantly more than my wages at uh, the hospital. <laughs> Indeed. Not a lot of people can get off that merry-go-round, can they? I mean, given that you're living very well, you're making so much money, you're having a lot of fun, you're wearing a Homer Simpson shirt to work and in the casino, so to speak. How did you get off that merry-go-round? So I really thought about it. I love poker and I kind of love the interaction and the social part of it and the mental challenge as well. But at the end of the day, what I was doing is if I was winning, because obviously I had good nights and bad nights, so that's on average, what I was doing is making my patients poorer. I was taking away money from families, children. So 60 hours of hard work... Yes, I'm making a living, but I'm not contributing positively to society. So then I kind of realised I could do this for the next few years, next 10 years, next few decades, and when I would look back on my life, what I would see is no benefit to society. Did you learn anything playing poker that has served you well in medicine, given that when you play poker, so much of that is about knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know? Yeah, so probability really becomes live. 
in a normal night of poker, you might play four to six hundred hands. And often you would put your money in. Well, hopefully, a lot of the time you put your money in when, when I'm ahead. Obviously, you can't be 100% sure because you don't have the complete information. But based on the assessment, put the money in when you're ahead. But sometimes even when you do that, if, if I had 99% chance of winning that hand, because the last card is yet to come, so you don't know exactly what it is, but you have a good odds about what it's likely to be. And if in these games you would lose one or 2,000 dollars potentially per 30 seconds so in very fast games each hand you you can potentially win or lose thousands of dollars and the probability becomes real and you kind of just accept okay i had the best best cards i made the right move i lost it's okay there's another 300 hands to come tonight and i would like to play with that person all night long because the odds are it will be heading in the right direction so it's a game where you see probability. Now, when you have children who need open-heart surgery, we tell the parents there's about 1% chance that your child will die during surgery and you may never see your child again. These are really serious open-heart operations. It just gives a different perspective to probability because that 1% chance is real. Most of the time, cardiac surgery is safe, but there is a small chance that it isn't. But it's not just to do with cardiac surgery that we calculate probability, even prescribing really basic medications. For example, aspirin for people who have previous heart attacks. Aspirin gives you benefit of stopping potential clogging of arteries, but aspirin could give you gastric ulcers. So everything has a risk-benefit. So everything we do in medicine, we very carefully need to balance the risks and the benefits, and that's probability. The difference in poker is that you see it play out three or four hundred times in a night. But in medicine, you see the negatives and positives maybe over 20 years. So it's like a really fast probability training. In the course of your life, just having you tell me your story, I, I, I wonder if your story really is you trying to find the place where you think you should be. Do you feel like you're in, you're in the place where you want to be, where you need to be right now? Yeah, I really do feel at home in rural and remote Australia as, as my place to live and to work. I really enjoy the big cities of Melbourne. I'm a very keen traveller, so I like to explore the world. I don't actually have any given place that I call home. I kind of feel like the universe is my home. So it's more like being a Hungarian gypsy. <laughs> or being where you're needed, maybe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's probably the more important part is, you know, we all seek rewards in our lives. We want to be rewarded and have positive experiences. And for me to be able to bring justice, to make sure the children have equitable access to health, basic health services and advanced health services is kind of the challenge and mission that I've taken on. Well, I think you're an amazing person, Bo. I've so enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. abc.net.au slash conversations is our website. I'm Richard Feidler. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.